Okay, well, it seems my recording software does not want to record. So that doesn't affect too much. We'll just play. Okay, so we've talked about one more application of laser spectroscopy. Um, this is another maybe less conventional application, or at least um, a type of application that we haven't talked about in the context of the different things that we've discussed up until now. So it's laser remote sensing, or LIDAR. So we'll talk about the principles of LIDAR, and then a few applications for measuring air, water, land, space. And then, depending on the time, we'll look at a specific example where LIDAR was used to map out the tomography of the South Bay. Okay, so LIDAR sounds like radar. Does anybody know what radar stands for? If it makes you feel better, I don't. So. Yeah, maybe. Radio detection and ranging. That sounds about right. Okay, so this is laser detection and ranging. Laser detection and ranging, I guess. Um, there it is. Laser detection and ranging. So it uses lasers to measure objects that are not in the laboratory but are some distance away. And so because the objects are a distance away, and those objects can be um, aerosols that are in the air, particulate spewed by a volcano, um, just gases in the air that you might want to measure in order to track wind movement, maybe just the ground or the vegetation if you're trying to do a uh, tomography survey. So in general, if your object is far away, you're going to want high power beams with low divergence so that you can get a lot of power to the target and then get as much power coming back. Low divergence beams basically means you want a telescope in order to send it out to receive the collected light. Um, the spectral characteristics that you want for your laser light depend on the, the application. You might want monochromatic light if you're trying to look for a particular species, say, in the air. You're trying to observe the presence of um, sulfuric acid in the air, for example. You might want a particular wavelength that's absorbed by sulfuric acid and not by other, other elements, for example. Um, or you might not want a monochromatic source. You might want a pulsed source if you're doing more temporal ranging. If you're using the, the round-trip travel time of, of the light to measure the distance to your object then you might be more concerned about having the light sent in pulses rather than having a particular wavelength. It's often useful to have a long coherence length that allows two parts of the beam that have been spatially separated or temporally separated by a great distance or time to be interfered coherently. Um, that's useful, for instance, if you need to do um, Doppler shift measurements on the reflected light you can compare it to a little bit of the light going out of your uh, LIDAR system. So you can interfere a little bit of light picked off from a beam splitter with some light that's scattered off of a distant target. And in order for that to work, they need to be coherent over that, that great distance. You might need kilometers of coherence length, which means a very monochromatic source. And then the wavelengths that you have may be important. If you're using monochromatic light to select a particular 
element or a particular compound that you're looking for, then you not only need single wavelengths, they need to be specific wavelengths. So there's a few constraints on the, uh, the laser system that you use for LiDAR. And there's a variety of ways this is typically implemented. Um, a few are shown here. It can be implemented from an airplane. Right? It's often useful if you're doing scans of, of vegetation or ground cover or tomography of the ground if you're looking at the uh, land or water. It can be done from a satellite to monitor conditions in the atmosphere or on the surface of the Earth. Um, and for atmospheric measurements, it can also be done from ground, shining up. Right. Of course, these aren't the only ways it can be done, but you can imagine that these methods allow you to scan large samples of, of space or, or land very rapidly. So this might be a way to, yeah, to measure wind speed or to measure particulate concentration above this observatory. Um, this particular photo, actually, I think that's a guide star that's used for um, measuring atmospheric turbulence to correct the, to compensate for it in a deformable mirror in a telescope. But, um, but the fact is you can send a laser beam up into the air and, and look at scattered light coming back and then infer from that scattered light information about the contents of the, of the path that it, it passes through or the distance to a particular object that it interacts with. So there's some particular applications that are maybe more famous than others. So that one, if you've ever driven through Ohio, you can have many encounters with this. Um, so police laser guns, right? So they have radar, radar guns. One of the downfalls of radar guns is you know, cancer when you're sitting there holding the radar gun in your lap. Another one is uh, radar detectors offer a way to beat that. So laser-based uh, velocity detection has become fairly common. And uh, principle is very similar. It uses lasers, though, instead. Um, the beam's more directed. They're able to, specify, to shoot, shoot it at different cars and, and, and distinguish between the velocity of different cars rather than just um, hoping, hoping that they're uh, measuring the right vehicle. Then laser ranging to the moon. During the Apollo program, a number of reflectors, retro reflectors were placed on the moon that have been used for laser ranging to measure the distance, the change in the distance to the moon very precisely. Um, those retro reflectors, I think we've talked about them, they're just corner cubes. So they're, if you imagine a box, a rectangular box, and one interior corner that's metallic so that it reflects. Then the geometrical law of reflection causes any light that hits this reflector to bounce around and come back parallel to the input light. So regardless of the orientation of the incident light, it will always reflect straight back. This is why those little uh, dots that they stick down in the road look so bright at night. They're reflecting your headlights straight back to your car. That's why when you take a photograph of you at night in your running jacket, all you see is bright stripes or lines or whatever from the reflective parts of the, uh, the safety feature of the jacket. 
Um, and they exist on the moon. And so you can shine a laser at the moon, illuminate a large portion of the moon. You don't really need to be that specific because any light that hits this gets sent back with good, uh, with high reflectivity and can be relatively easy to, to detect. Um, a couple other interesting and relatively recent applications that I found in the news. Um, measuring damage from Hurricane Katrina was done using LIDAR. Um, basically mapping the ground, looking for changes in the vegetation. And then uh, a very careful topographical map of the South Bay was done in order to um, create a baseline for a project to restore a bunch of wetlands that had been, been usurped by the salt farming. So those are both in the past four years. Okay, so let's talk about a typical experiment. We mentioned that you generally want collimated beams, and that means telescopes. <coughs> not necessarily the case that you need collimated beams depending on what you're doing. Um, we said we wanted high-powered lasers. So here's a neodymium EMAG laser and it's sending out several frequency components. Another laser is sending out ultraviolet. So there's four different uh, wavelengths being sent out. In this case, the output beam is not collimated or is not expanded by a telescope. Um, the reflected light that's gathered in the telescope, the reflected light is not in a beam, it's basically scattered isotropically. So a large telescope is advantageous for maximizing your collection efficiency. Um, we'll talk in a minute about why it's useful to have several wavelengths and why it's useful to have, in particular, a pair of wavelengths that are very close together. You can do differential measurements between an absorption band and slightly off an absorption band of an element that you're looking for if you have two closely spaced wavelengths. Okay, so you have some lasers sending light out, collection optics to collect the returned light. You'll notice in this diagram, this is an aircraft window. And then some detection optics. The light that's coming back is generally light scattered from a distance away. And as a result, it's generally weak. And so we have photomultiplier tubes here as opposed to um, other, other detector technologies like photodetectors. So these are sensitive to, to low power. Um, that means they need to basically operate in the dark. So um, this whole thing would be enclosed to keep out ambient light. There'd be filters placed in front of these to filter frequencies that don't correspond to the particular wavelength of interest. So we have different filters in front of each four detector because there's four different wavelengths. And this particular system is measuring ozone in the atmosphere. Okay, so we can understand a little bit about the different methods that are used for LIDAR. If we look at a very general and uh, sort of nonspecific this is another way of saying general, but a very general equation for the detected power in a LIDAR measurement. It's proportional to how much power your laser puts out, as you'd expect. It's proportional to the size of your scattering object. 
and then it falls off as 1 over r squared. Okay, so the scattering object scatters isotropically. What you detect, it seems to me what you would detect would be 4 pi r squared. It should fall off as 4 pi over r squared. The book has it as pi over r squared. And uh, I just quoted the value in the book. I don't, I don't do LIDAR myself, so I don't have any more insight than what's in the book um, in terms of the form of this equation. But it falls off as you get further away, just due to the, the scattered light decreasing in intensity. And then it has a factor that depends on the efficiency of your input and output optics. So this tau would represent the transmission, the power transmission of all the input and output optics. Epsilon would represent essentially the reflectance of the target. And I said it's a general equation. Um, this epsilon then could be the reflection, reflectivity of the target, or it could be the amount of light that's scattered from the target, or the amount of light that is fluorescing from the target, if you're uh, pumping the target and then looking for fluorescence. So we just call it the response of the target in very general terms. And depending on the application, it could have different, different specific meanings. And then gamma is a factor that accounts for everything between your uh, detector and your object that you're looking at. So it's the, uh, it's the transmission of the atmosphere, essentially. So epsilon is a little So what's that? So you may know epsilon. You will. You may. Okay, so it depends on what you're doing. So let's say you're looking for ozone in the atmosphere. You can take and put ozone in a laboratory and measure you know, how much light gets scattered from it or at the wavelength you're interested in and uh, determine epsilon. And then what you might be measuring then is if you pulse your signal. We'll see the details of how you, how you detect this. You might be looking at the distance to the ozone, looking at the height in the atmosphere. You may be looking at concentration, which would go into epsilon. So epsilon would be some sort of integrated parameter that depends on how much ozone you have and the uh, scattering from a particular molecule or per unit volume. Yeah, so if you're, this is why I say it's a general equation, right? If you're looking at a gas and you have some, some target that's going to uniformly fill the gas, or at least it's uniform over the size of your laser beam, then S might be more like the size of your laser beam, and in any event, it would sort of have to also be related to epsilon because that would you know, determine how much of the material you're interacting with. If your target is a corner cube that's on the moon, then your beam is going to be much larger than that, in which case S is not the size of your beam, it's the size of the target. It's just sort of a general, it's, I mean, it's very much an empirical expression, right? There's nothing here that's too fundamental. It just says the more power you have, the bigger the target, the closer you are, and the stronger the reflectivity and the less loss you have due to your optics and the atmosphere, the bigger the signal you see. So that's all it's saying. So one of the things that differentiates LIDAR from a lot of other spectroscopic measurements is that 
it's not done in the laboratory. So you have much less control over the conditions. As a result, it's very necessary to calibrate your measurement, uh, to calibrate it in an, either in real time, have some auto calibration feature, have a lot of different uh, consistency checks in your measurement um, to account for all the uncertainties that may, may be present in an uncontrolled environment. Um, so a few ways that you can do that. If you're measuring the distance to an object that reflects the light, you can have some reflectors that are known distance. And we'll see an example of that um, when we look at the mapping of the South Bay. So you can have some known uh, calibration targets. You can compare the signals being sent out to themselves. So if you have a certain rep rate for your laser, you can compare the rep rate going out to the rep rate going in and use that to infer any uh, Doppler shift on the returned light. Okay, so you can have some sort of self-calibration in that sense. You might have some calibration lines just from scattering in the atmosphere. Okay, so you may have a particular molecule you're looking for. There may be other molecules that have certain uh, known wavelength, wavelengths of absorption. Uh, so you may be able to use, use those as some sort of calibration. You may have um, you may be looking for particulate matter that's from a volcano that's in the Earth's atmosphere. You may know that in the stratosphere there's, there's ozone, for example. You might be looking for it lower at a lower height. So you might be able to compare the height of the measured ozone that you expect to be there from other reasons to that that, that are there from a different reason. And I mentioned the Doppler shifted laser frequency can be used. Um, you can do that by comparing the time between pulses, or you can do it by measuring the instantaneous frequency of the laser. Both are measurements where you're calibrating a return signal to the outgoing signal. Okay, so those are all forms of calibration that are important. So LIDAR can be used to measure air, sea, land, space. Um, things that are interesting to measure in the air. I mentioned uh, aerosols, clouds, just to map out the uh, either for uh, meteorology or to understand the Earth or Mars's or whatever planet you're exploring's atmosphere, um, ice crystals. And all those things can be spatially and uh, temporally mapped so that you get wind patterns, um, three-dimensional wind patterns. A um, couple different techniques. One is dial, differential absorption LIDAR. I made reference to this a minute ago. It involves comparing two closely spaced wavelengths to look at a differential measurement and then absorption coefficient measurements. And I'll describe a little bit about how each of these are done. So the differential measurement, dial, uses two closely spaced laser wavelengths. Okay, so I'll draw them here on a, a frequency plot that shows the absorption of a particular molecule of interest. And the idea is that if you tune those laser frequencies such that one is on resonance and one is not, 
then you're going to have a differential absorption between the two. And if they're close in frequency, then you'd expect that the frequency dependence of these other parameters should be nearly the same for them. Okay, so for example, the transmission of the atmosphere is a function of wavelength. The, um, what is it? the transmission of your optics is a function of wavelength. The response of what you're looking for is also a function of wavelength, and you're betting on the fact that it's a stronger function of wavelength um, because you have a, a narrow resonance in two closely spaced lines, such that the difference in the response from these two um, laser wavelengths can be assumed to be entirely due to the response of the material you're looking for. All these other things would be considered constant. Okay, so we can write the ratio of the detected power for the resonant and the non-resonant wavelength. As I've done down here, I'll remind you that the uh, general form for the absorbed power, let's see, the transmitted power through material looks like e to the minus alpha l alpha sum absorption coefficient we can write that as a number density times a cross section and is it 2 alpha yes it is it is 2 alpha thank you the field is alpha the power is 2 alpha. So in laboratory experiments, we generally have our material contained in some sort of cell, and we can say something about its length. Uh, here we can't. So we would say the transmitted power would look like uh, we'd have to integrate this, uh, this absorption. over the range of our measurement. Okay, so you can say we can write, by taking the natural log of both sides, we can write the uh, So we'll use this relationship in a minute. Um, right now, I guess I can go back a step. And this is the transmitted for the resonant frequency. And the power to be transmitted for the non-resonant would have the same form. But it's going to have a different cross-section. then the difference 
in those two, or the actually the ratio. When I take the ratio of these two, the exponents are going to subtract. And so I get a term which depends on the difference in the uh, cross-section for the resonant and the non-resonant. Okay, so this is, this is the result that I would have if I finished that expression. I've included n inside the integral, which is probably a good thing to do because you probably shouldn't assume that it's constant over the entire range of the device. Okay, so. Um, so, well, it's a little bit ambiguous. what capital R is. Um, it's, it's sort of the distance to which I'm measuring. And how you know how far you're measuring is not exactly clear at this point. Um, there's a couple different things you could do. You could send out pulses, and the return time of your light would be, map, would be linearly mapped to the distance away from which it's scattering. Well, so let's say you have, what happens is, let's say you're measuring the concentration of oxygen in the air. Right? There's oxygen throughout the air. So you send out, you send out um, your light and it, you get scatter back at a certain time. That light's traveled through the material um, there and back. And so the way I've written this is that if the effect is being caused in transmission, and then we're getting scatter from sort of any random uh, particle. And in this case, it's the transmission of the atmosphere that, we'd be, that would be different, the two different wavelengths. If it's the material that I'm detecting that's scattering the light, then it would be epsilon. And in that case, you would know the distance. Uh, or the distance to the scatterer would be the distance to the, uh, to the signal. Okay, whereas if it's transmission through, it would be integrated along the distance to the scatterer. Yeah, so if you send out a pulse, you're going to get a temporally broadened pulse returned. Okay. Um, and you generally do LIDAR with pulses. So even in this situation, we want specific wavelengths. So they're not going to be extremely short pulses. And the temporal resolution or the, the longitudinal resolution is not going to be extremely high. But you can still have you know, pulses on the order of uh, milliseconds and get differentiation between on-resonance and off-resonance. 
The, the line width here is inversely proportional to the upper state lifetime of the material. So as long as your pulse duration is, um, is shorter than that, or is longer than that, then uh, your laser line width will be smaller than this transition. So as long as your pulse is longer, the line width will be shorter. I can tell you this is the um, this is the method used for precision measurements. Now you don't need that level of precision for say this method generally requires more post processing than radar. So it's more labor intensive. It's also more accurate. But I can't. If you might talk to Pat Hamill, who actually does uses LIDAR for measurements of airborne aerosols. Okay, so you can determine the density of your target at a particular distance. If you can make a measurement at two different distances, one at your desired range and one slightly further than that. So if you have a short pulse that goes out, you have a temporally broadened pulse and you can measure um, the effect at two points within that returned pulse, then you can measure the, uh, the signal at two different times. And you can relate the density at that distance to the detected signals. So that's where I was going to go with this. We call phi the ratio that here the transmitted to the incident power. Well, actually, it's the ratio of the re returned power to the power I send out, but that's going to be due to the, the power transmitted through the atmosphere. Then I have this expression for R. If I measure at a greater distance, what changes is the limits on this integral. This sigma is really the difference um, between the resonant this expression here. So I can write this as the sum of two integrals, one from 0 to r, and one from r to r plus delta r.
Yeah, I'm going to subtract the one above from this to get rid of this term. Um, and I do that because see, I'm going to use natural log of a over b, natural log of a minus natural log of b. So if I take the natural log of 5r plus r over 5r, So these are the two signals that I get, two different times. If I divide them and take the natural log, then I get the difference between the two signals. Yeah, so um, this term cancels this term, and only this term survives. When I integrate from r to r plus delta r, I can neglect, since that's a short distance, I can neglect any deviations in the uh, population density. And I can say this integral is equal to the population density at a distance r times the distance over which that integral occurs, delta r. And then I can solve for n of r to get this expression. So what are the relative Well, you're using photomultiplier tubes. So you, you're, you should expect to be detecting streams of photons meaning, you know, a few photons per pulse on that order. It depends on how far you're looking, whether you're using an airplane to look at the ground from 250 meters or whether you're measuring, you know, particulate in the upper atmosphere that's much further away. So I can't tell you any more than that sort of general statement. So that's differential. LIDAR or DIAL. Another technique is to measure the absorption coefficient. And here we're again going to start with the LIDAR equation. And we'll assume that the term that represents the transmission of the atmosphere has some absorption in it that we want to measure, just like we did here. Um, in this case, we're talking about determining the number density. Here we'll measure the absorption coefficient, which is the number density times the cross-section. Okay, and so we'll assume that that number density is, is constant. So we'll let T be the round-trip travel time of our pulse, and then the distance to our object that the pulse scatters off of is c times the one-way distance, or the one-way travel time, which is t over 2. So we'll let r be ct over 2. We'll plug that in into the LIDAR equation. So this becomes now the detected power as a function of time. And so you send out a pulse, 
the initial scattering produces a strong return pulse, but as the pulse propagates further and further, not only does it get more and more attenuated, but it also gets um, the reflected light gets, or the scattered light that's coming back gets weaker and weaker because it's falling off as one over r squared. So there's the one over r squared part. So at later and later times, you get less and less power returning. And here's the part that accounts for the fact that it's propagating through more and more atmosphere. What's that? Well, yeah, so you send out a pulse, you would expect that after a certain amount of time, you're not going to get any power back, right? You expect the return power to go to zero. Well, so light travels a foot per nanosecond. Right? So if you're measuring something that's you know, a kilometer away, that's 3,000 feet, so that's uh, 3,000, 6,000 nanoseconds, which is uh, six microseconds. Okay, so the time is, I mean, on sort of human time scales, it's instantaneous. You're sending out a pulse and you're immediately measuring the return. Okay, so we can manipulate this equation much like we did um, over here for the dial expression. We can take the natural log. Um, first, we'll multiply by uh, the t squared over here, and we'll take the natural log of both sides. So we have... Um, well, I guess I, I separated all the, the factors uh, from the exponential term. So when I take the natural log of the exponential term, I get its argument. When I take the natural log of the factors, uh, this is the, from the numerator, and that's from the denominator. And I've written it here where the time-dependent term is separate from the non-time-dependent term. I mean, I could have written this, I could have just taken this term and written, written it in the denominator. Um, but the reason I didn't do that is because you can then take the time derivative of both sides and this, all this stuff just cancels out. So the time derivative of this side is the time derivative of the natural log of the defective power times t. The time derivative of this side is just minus alpha c. So solving for alpha, the absorption coefficient of the atmosphere, 1 over c times the time derivative of this quantity. So if you measure your detected power as a function of time, in post-processing, then, you can uh, multiply that by the, the time. Right? So you can, change, you can change that function and then do this processing and, and compute the acceleration of a, uh, of a uniform concentration of, of absorbing material in the atmosphere. Okay, so water is the same as atmosphere in the sense that uh, the same types of uh, techniques apply. The main difference is it's more absorbing, so you don't get signals from as far away. They light, basically, you don't get usable signals uh, from great distances. So typically, you only operate within a, a few hundred meters or so. And as a result, your time delays are that much shorter. They're on the order of nanoseconds, not microseconds. And so you need higher speed electronics. Yes. That's called a bathymetric measurement. You can measure the depth of the ocean. 
Well, you can't measure it everywhere, but um, for instance, you can measure the depth of the bay, of the San Francisco Bay. What's that? It's pretty shallow. I don't know how deep it is, but does anybody else know? Yeah. Well, the, the land doesn't go up. I mean, it's a pretty shallow slope. We're only at like 50 feet right here. Um, the bay turns out to be fairly muddy, so it actually doesn't work so well. Um, the only reason I know that is from reading this paper on the measurement of the bay, but uh, we'll get to that in one slide. Um, and you can sense land. Land is basically a scatterer, um, a well-defined scatterer. So you're not integrating over great distances, you're just measuring a pulse that comes back at a well-defined time. Um, it's well-defined in the sense that if you have uh, smooth ground, you should get a, a well-defined return pulse. Sometimes you don't, you have vegetation. That can lead to multiple pulses coming back, basically from the top of the vegetation and from the bottom of the vegetation. So you can use those differences to determine the height of the vegetation. That can be used to determine or estimate the volume of vegetation. So you can measure the rainforest destruction. You can measure the effect of Hurricane Katrina on a region, um, things like that. And that's called a bathymetric measurement, where you compare the height from a f or the time of a first pulse to a latter pulse. So measuring the depth of the ocean, you have the first pulse being off the surface, another pulse coming from the, the bottom of the ocean. As the ocean gets deeper and deeper, the strength of that second pulse would, would get weaker and weaker. Um, you can use your laser pulse to pump various types of chlorophyll or um, other types of, uh, of chemicals found in vegetation and look at the fluorescence that comes off to monitor the type of vegetation, the map out the type of vegetation. And I mentioned the bathymetric measurements. So let's look at an example of this being done. This is from the U.S. Geological uh, Society survey, U.S. Geological Survey of the South Bay in 2004, so relatively recently. And it was done with low-flying aircraft, 250 meters is the height that they describe in the paper. And the aircraft itself has a GPS unit on board. So the position of the aircraft is known to within the uncertainty of GPS. And then a laser system on board scans a pulse laser back and forth uh, in a transverse direction relative to the flight path of the airplane. And it measures pulses reflecting back from each of these discrete points. And just by the round trip delay time, it determines the height of these points. And so it flies back and forth. It maps out. It was about 250 meters wide, a swath as it goes, and it basically sends one pulse down every meter. And so it's a very rapid way to monitor with pretty good precision a large area. Um, I think so. I think for the, because you can localize a laser better than you can localize a, so a radar dish, if you want to focus it down, you need enormous, just because of the wavelength involved, enormous telescopes. So it wouldn't fit in an airplane. Okay, so I'll just walk through the paper. I didn't hand out the paper, but um, I've highlighted some of the interesting points. 
Um, so this was conducted in May of 2004. If you saw any airplanes flying really low overhead at that time, it's probably what this was. Um, it was a highly, it was the most detailed, comprehensive topographic map of the region at the time, probably still. So more detailed than what you'd have just from from you know Google Earth imagery or any type of imagery like that that would map out uh, height. Here's the area that was mapped out. So we were mapped out. And you can see that there's a region that's mapped out that actually appears to be below the surface of the bay. Um, they did this in May of 2004. The tides were very low that month. That's how that month was chosen. And so they attempted to fly as much as possible at low tide so they could map as much of the ground as possible. Their LIDAR wasn't capable of penetrating the, mur the muddy water of the bay. So, um, so they don't see any, any topography for underwater areas. Okay, so a very high resolution digital elevation model. Um, mentions that the LiDAR method uses a laser that sends thousands of pulses per second. So it's a kilohertz rep rate, at least. Surface elevations are determined using the two-way travel time of the light pulses. So it's a very straightforward, simple technique that doesn't involve any of this calculations. Just a round-trip travel time. Um, although it's possible to measure the depth of the water, that wasn't possible here because the water was muddy. Yeah, I mean, it's a, optically it's a high absorber. There might be wavelengths at which it would be less absorbing. They were choosing a commercially available product to put onto an airplane. Um, so they weren't designing a, a particular experiment. And um, in any event, they were interested in mapping out the ground that they were going to uh, eventually reclaim as wetlands. So presumably it wasn't so important. Um, the beam had a spot size of 750 millimeters, something like this, on the ground, uh, which is you know, no, would be no benefit in having a smaller, smaller size because the spots were about 1.1 meters in spacing. So there's no point in having a spot size smaller than the separation of data points. I don't know. It's buried in here somewhere. Pulse was at 10 kilohertz. I'm, it has to be near infrared just because um, near the sort of 1.3 micron up to about 10 microns is eye safe. So if you're doing it invisible, you'd run into health issues or power constraints. Scaring, yeah. Um, I don't know offhand, but I don't think they made any, I didn't notice anything that mentioned they were doing it at night. Well, the peak of solar radiation is invisible. The peak of the solar irradiance is in the visible. There's probably, there's probably more power in the infrared because it's a much larger portion of the spectrum. But if you can filter out just the wavelength range of the, your laser system, and because you have a pulsed system, 
Um, you can also temporarily gate. Yeah. Okay, so they measured multiple return pulses. They assumed the first were from the top of vegetation. Um, and if there was a, an additional pulse that returned, it was from the bottom. So that uh, if there was only a single pulse, they assumed there was no vegetation present. The accuracy was limited by the knowledge of the position of the laser on the spacecraft. Yeah. And uh, they found out actually there was an error due to the fact that there was a screw broken and the laser was moving around a little bit. They sent the data back to the company that made the LiDAR system. They did a bunch of post-processing using their calibration and were able to, to remove that error. The vertical accuracy of the system uh, was 10 to 15 centimeters. Okay, so it's pretty good. Yeah, I guess you could if you were standing there. You know, it's a 75 millimeter or 70, 750 millimeter spot, so you can see people sunbathing. Sumo wrestlers. <laughs> cars. Um, and that, you notice it says that's on low sloping hard surfaces. The problem with, with steep slopes, of course, is that over a reasonable size, your difference in height is going to exceed that, that level. And then hard surfaces will produce you know, a, a, a well-defined point of reflection, whereas vegetation or such will have some, some depth to it. Uh, calibration, they used, it says, 165 static ground point truth points. A truth point just means a calibration point. So they had 165 different points where they measured the location using GPS. They compared that to their LiDAR measurements. They also mentioned these kinematic ground truth points, which is basically they mapped out uh, points along the road using sticking a GPS in a car, essentially, and driving along the road, and uh, mapping out height along these different 10-kilometer length segments, also using that for calibration. I believe that it's not that they have retroreflectors, it's that they have an absolute measurement for the height. So the two ways that you can get measurement are, this is all GPS based, in the sense that the airplane has a GPS on it. It's measuring the distance from the airplane to the ground and back. Um, then if you also measure the ground using GPS, right, then you can calibrate that that link from the airplane to the ground in terms of two known points and compare, yeah, compare your two methods of measuring the ground height. Um, and so I, I think that's all that was done is that 165 points GPS measurements were taken on the ground. So the primary limitation from this data set is not knowing what type of surface the return is from. Um, so they mentioned that, for example, it's um, difficult to distinguish between hard, flat ground and water. Um, they describe how they attempted to determine the, the height of the tides at the various points the data was taken to differentiate between the, 
the, uh, the two types of measurements. Um, and this shows how they did that. These are satellite images taken at the same time that their LIDAR was done. This is the LIDAR map. And so they used the position, the, their visual reference of where the, the coastline was to determine what points from the LIDAR was water and what points were land. Um, they also mentioned that reflection off of water, so this, this uh, airplane is shooting light out, pulsing beams along a 65 degree swath, so it's sweeping back and forth, but the water doesn't scatter very much uh, the high angle of incidence rays. So they only got return signals from the central like 40 degrees when they were scanning the water. And as a result, when they went over water, they flew the airplane back and forth 250, degree, 250 meters apart. And uh, that was enough to produce overlapping measurements on land. But in water, the measurements weren't as wide. And so they had these lines, these stripes of uncollected data. And that was another method that they used to differentiate between water and land. Um, okay, so I already mentioned a couple of limitations on measurement steep slopes produced an uncertainty in the, res in the height and then uh, vegetation in particular growing on steep slopes presented a problem because uh, the height of the vegetation versus the height of the, the ground over here um, became difficult to distinguish. Okay, so they're saying they got good data, unprecedented topographical maps. So here's an elevation map. Um, these contours are in meters. So these subtle shades of green are tracing out meter level elevation changes. Then they use this map that they created to do some 3D imaging. So they can see the Dumbarton Bridge, Coyote Hills. Here's, here we are, somewhere down here. This is somewhere down in the South Bay. I don't know my geography well enough to figure out where we are on this plot, if we are here. Does anybody know? Okay. I'll believe it. Other interesting things you can see pretty clearly like the little uh, little roads that separate the salt flats that you can see from the airplane. This is a uh, few images where they overlay the satellite data which has you know good spatial resolution with their color coding and the temporal resolution. So you get these really nice maps. Yeah. They use some, they mentioned looking at shadows in the uh, satellite imagery to do some sort of, not so much calibration, but consistency checks. You can see that the height and, and steepness of a train is proportional to the shadow length. 
This one I think is kind of cool. That's uh, Shoreline Amphitheater. If you've been up to Shoreline, uh, there's the tents right there. Right, so parking lot. This is the amphitheater area. Those are the big hills behind it. Okay, so the main thing about LiDAR is spectroscopy, but it's not in a laboratory environment. So there's a lot more things that are not controlled. So calibration's <coughs> necessary. Um, the precision often is not you know, what you might expect in a laboratory environment. Um, but you can, the reason that this was useful for this satellite survey is they could map out with an airplane very rapidly. Uh, the alternative is to take a GPS and drive it around on a car, which you can't very well do in sensitive wetlands. Environments where you couldn't do it, and it's also time, time sensitive. Um, has all sorts of practical applications. There's lots of, lots of applications ra ranging from the very simple, like what was described here, which is just time of flight measurement, to much more complex um, that are used for monitoring atmosphere on Earth, on Mars. Um, I mentioned a couple times volcano uh, eruptions. The sulfuric acid is traced using this technique. Um, a lot of our knowledge of climate and climate change is based on LIDAR measurements. So an interesting application of, of the material that we've talked about up until now. Any questions? Well, when you're mapping out with the, the ranging here, you have pulsed sources in order to measure the time of flight. So in a sense, that is like white light. Um, we use lasers because they can be collimated high intensity to get a reasonable amount of power coming back. And then requiring it be in a certain spectral bandwidth allows you to put filters in front of your photomultiplier tubes to block out as much of the sunlight and, and ambient light as possible. So those are some of the reasons. Well, this was all measured using relative to the GPS coordinates. But, okay, so GPS, what does GPS represent? Okay. Like, what's zero meters uncertainty? Well, there's, a, there's an inherent uncertainty in GPS. So, um, I mean, the way, I, I'm no expert on this, but the way GPS works is there's like 22 satellites in low Earth orbit. Their trajectory is very well known by the satellites themselves. And they have very accurate clocks on board. Um, and so the, the precision in which you know a GPS location is largely determined by the precision of the satellite's knowledge of where it is and the certainty of its clock. And basically what it's sending out is it's sending out radio pulses that identify itself. Uh, it puts a timestamp on it, and it says where the satellite was at the time that, that signal was sent. Your receiver gets all these different signals from the different satellites, and it can use that information to triangulate you know, the, the time of flight, using the time of flight from the different satellites, there's only one consistent position that uh, produces all those, uh, that can reconcile itself with all the different times of, of the... Yeah, but I, I see that, but I mean, again, we have to 
I don't know how the... Uh, well, so the satellites have a certain height, right? So that's known. So the certain distance from the center of the Earth. Now, because you're triangulating to a bunch of points that are um, maybe well separated in space, but are all flying you know, just a few tens of kilometers, maybe hundreds of kilometers above the Earth, what you end up with is much more precision in latitude and longitude than you have in, in altitude. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. If you're a NASA set, uh, scientist and you decide you're going to send up a spacecraft and you want to tell it exactly where it is, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. Well, there is, and I think those, the Earth's local gravitational gradient is known pretty well. But, you know, all those things present uncertainty. Um, you know, for, I think now you can, it used to be that they also then dithered the, the information that was sent so that unless you had military access, then they had intentionally scrambled the, they'd intentionally introduced a random error I think they've removed that now. Yeah, it used to be like 30. Up to like five, five years ago. Well, well, that was the thing. The military hardware was capable of three feet, but the consumer hardware was off by a factor of 10. So it's still useful, like, you know, if you're going boating and you need to find your way back, but, you know, maybe not to, like, tell you which... Yeah, um... So, so when they when they remove that when they remove that dithering, they remain they retain the right to uh, make consumer devices inoperable uh, temporarily. So you know they can say uh, during times of war they can, for example, just turn off the consumer GPS systems. Um, right, which is why a number of other nations are are scrambling to to set up their own GPS systems. So much is, and there are, there are other global positioning systems other than GPS. Um, well, it is global. I mean, it's but um, it's not international. I don't know. Well, I know that. So I do know that. Yes, there because my wife is an attorney and worked on a case where, and initially, any. Tech, any company that licensed GPS technology is required to pay a certain percentage of the product cost to the licensor. And I don't know whether that was the government or some agency that... Um, and then the issue became when they started integrating them in automobiles and stuff, instead of having a $200 device, it was a $20,000 device. And you're still paying a fractional cost. And she was involved a little bit in the renegotiating those terms. But... Um, um, the, well, we're talking about the resolution. There's the the resolution can be improved greatly if you um, ref. So what you can do is you can take a GPS receiver, put it on at a known location, put it on the ground at some reference point, measure its location, and then all the GPS coordinates on your probe you reference to that. So that's called differential GPS, and it greatly improves the sensitivity. And that defines then your 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 zero point, your your coordinate system. Okay, so I'll see you next Tuesday. Next Monday? Monday? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.